Scotch Stories by Whiskey FM. So I am absolutely delighted, Ronnie, to be here with you at Berry Brothers and Rudd. I have an, the enormous privilege of speaking to Ronnie Cox today, who is the Brands Heritage Director at Berry Brothers and Rudd in London. That's right. My first question, Ronnie, is who are you and what do you do? But I've sort of I've summed up already, but perhaps you can expand on, on that. Well, I have the... People call it one of the most fun jobs, I suppose, in, in life. And years ago, when my father said to me what I wanted to do, because I wouldn't go to university, uh, I said rather facetiously that um, I love travelling, um, talking to people and drinking. He quite swiftly reminded me that I wouldn't be able to find a job or a career less uh, of you know, incorporating all those three things. Um, when he died five or six years ago in his 90s, he had a wry smile on his face and he said, you managed to achieve what you set out to do, <laughs> which is absolutely right. So I, um, for many years, I worked for what is now Diageo on the sales side, and basically traveling around the world and doing commercial business uh, in, in various parts of the world. And then I joined Berry Brothers and Rudd and s- became a sort of malt whiskey um, specialist using a brand of whiskey which Berry Brothers and Rudd um, purchased and called, called Glenrothes Whiskey and developing really what was um, just a love in life, uh, a natural love in life. So my job today is, is really, it's a sort of, I'm a sandwich board. I'm a sort of broadcaster uh, of what Berry Brothers and Rudd is all about. Um, the whiskey side, the spirit side of Berry Brothers and Rudd, which many people don't really know exists outside the, um, the sort of the corridor of the M25 um, in, in, in the UK. So that is my job. I'm effectively the uh, sort of the guardian of the history, guard the uh, probably the um, the great advocate of of the merits of Berry Brothers and Rudd and the spirits that we have in our portfolio. Fantastic. And thinking particularly about your whiskey journey, can you remember your first dram? I do you know. I can't remember my first dram. What I do remember though is my grandfather taking me up the hill of called Benrinis in Mauritius. And there there was a, a character who I had never met, never set eyes on, but it, it took us ten minutes to walk up to this, to this little uh, Button Ben uh, house. And outside the Button Ben there was a puddle, and in the puddle, at the bottom of the puddle, my grandfather said to me, do you know what's at the bottom of that puddle? The water was clear. And there was some barley. And it was that stage that he started to explain that this was an illicit still um, housed within the Bothy, one of the few remaining um, in Scotland. And this was in probably 1960. Um, So I I wasn't allowed to drink anything at that age. And unlike a lot of my friends who had bad experiences in um, borrowing, liberating, stealing whiskey from their father's cabinet. Yes. <laughs> I I never had that 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 poor experience. So I was extraordinarily lucky, aged um, aged twenty one, uh, when my father lifted the ban on drinking spirits, to uh, actually understand a little bit more about it, and knew full well that 
Uh, whiskey, like beer, is something that you grow to love. You don't immediately love it. So your father was very influential then in your whiskey drinking? I suppose that's completely natural because um, my family has been involved in the whiskey business for seven generations. Um, and the early two distillers uh, was certainly one of them was convicted um, in 18. 16 for both distilling and selling whiskey. Um, but in those days, uh, you wore that badge of conviction with um, the same pride that some people will wear an ASBO today. <laughs> Rather proudly. Yeah. Yes. Um, in as much as you were stupid to get caught, I suppose, but it was certainly not a serious crime. So your first role in the industry with, was with what's now Diageo. That yes, correct? yes. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough, because I didn't go to university, I decided, my father said to me, um, you can, I'll give you a one-way ticket anywhere you want in the world, just remember that if you go to Tahiti, it's a hell of a long swim back. <laughs> and so rather than, than do that, which was quite, uh, was quite exciting, the prospect of that was quite exciting, I went to live in Germany. And I worked for a wine company there, a sparkling wine company, called Henkel Trocken. And they very kindly um, not only helped me with my language, of, of, of basically trying to learn German, but also introduced me to the world of wine. They also happened to be the importer of a whiskey called Black and White, and introduced me then, uh, after a year of living there in Wiesbaden, to um, people called Gonzales Bias, in southern Spain, who also were the importers of black and white whiskey. And it was there, having learnt my, or polished up my Spanish after a year, that uh, I came back home and then was taken on by a, uh, by what is now Diageo. Mm-hmm. How did that role equip you for your, well, for building and for your future career in the well, it was it was interesting because having having lived in Germany and also in Spain, I, I fully understood. I began to really love and develop my uh, interest in, in 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 cultures and in people generally, and of course in my beloved um, whiskey. In those days, ninety nine percent of all that was sold from Scotland uh, a, a Scotch whiskey was blended, and so only one percent was. Um, single malts, I suppose. But I always harboured uh, a desire to try and expand the merits and the qualities of what is uh, single malt. So I had um, the, the introduction through James Buchanan and Company Limited, the black and white and Buchanan's, was a fascinating um, development on the side of but not only commercial, but also in terms of my taste and development as well. In those days, in the 1970s, of course, the, the, the whiskey style was, was very different to what it is today. And the, the procedure of making whiskey was very unhurried. It was very much more artisanal. Um, there were no computerization, for instance, in, in the industry at all. And I was selling whiskey to Latin America and developing relationships with Latin America um, through... Um, the, it was all done through contacts mm. um, and I quickly learned that in Latin America in those days which it was run by well, it was run by a whole um, 
whatever, most of those countries in Latin America were actually dictatorships, mm. uh, military dictatorships. And so the whiskey business wasn't very official. So you were shipping to people who perhaps would then would get it into the country through, um, through duty-free channels or other uh, channels. Um, and to me, it was all a bit of an eye-opening, uh, wonderful experience. You enjoyed it then? Part of the world. I just loved it. And of course, yeah. I was a bachelor until um, I fell in love every time I went down to Latin America um, <laughs> as, a, as a sort of red-headed jock. Um, <laughs> I uh, couldn't fail but fall in love. And... What I found quite quickly was that um, rather like um, some of the early Portuguese wines, they didn't travel very well. Um, and Latin American girls travelling back to the UK where the sun didn't shine 300 <laughs> no. days and 365 days didn't last very long. But it was... Uh, so that, it, it really sort of taught me both about the commercial side, about introductions to people, about the lifestyles of people, how important Scotch whisky was to those people. And so when I left... Um, the, um, the the equivalent of Diageo, which was called United Distillers in 1989, I fell on my feet by uh, finding a company that wanted to do exactly what I really wanted to do, which was to develop the Singapore business um, mm. in some way, shape or form. And the main reason that I left uh, the United Distillers was because they were going through through a phase of purchasing distributors around the world, so that they had total control from upstream profit, i.e., from the distillation side, all the way through to the wholesale side um, in individual countries. And the relationships that I had built up over 13, 14 years in Latin America now were being tested very severely because I was told to go and offer these people the chance of being purchased by. United Distillers at a discount price, mm. or we would take the brands away from them and give them to somebody else. Coercion, some sort of... Morally and ethically, it was totally unacceptable to me. So I did that yeah. for a year before I, I decided that I'd had enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst it's, it is, it, it's a tough old world out there in the business world, but this was compromising relationships, which I felt even more important than the commercial side. So... I felt very uncomfortable with that, and then I fell on my feet by finding oh, just this wonderful company, Barry Brothers and Rudd, who understood the principles and ethics that I also shared and wanted to develop. Um, and they had whiskies, so it was a perfect, it was a perfect match. match. Which meant you were primarily based here in London, or you're still doing quite a lot of travelling. Yes, I, I was. I was always based in in London, and that was the other side of the. Uh, it was a minor argument, but definitely, uh, United Distillers were positioning people not only buying distributors overseas, but they were also positioning people who had experience in the whisky market overseas. Um, so my options would have been um, to stay in one or two countries where um, I needn't necessarily have wanted to to stay in Latin America. So that was another another reason for um, for, for moving. But yes, very, with Barry Brothers and Riley, it was always based in the UK, and my initial job was always to um, develop the business in Latin America. And the green bottle and the yellow label of Cutty Sark, which was our main brand, um, was, uh, well, I happened to be the national colours of Brazil. So it seemed to me that to go into Brazil and, and neighbouring Paraguay, and the two, two markets are treated as one, really, because there's a lot of duty-free business going from one to the other. Um, it seemed to be completely natural, and I discovered that after a bit that 
um, the light colour, the light colour, the natural colour of Cutty Sark, um, was very difficult for the Latin American to to really comprehend. So um, they liked dark whiskey, mm. and they didn't really understand why whiskey was dark and why whiskey was was light. Um, they didn't understand the concept of colouring uh, blends to maintain a consistency, um, and in some cases just to to make it look more attractive. So that was a bit of a hardship, and um, I did that for about a couple of years before we started to develop Glenrothes as a single malt. Um, the brainchild of the then deputy managing director, who um, saw that there was the single malt market was evolving, and in the 19, late 1980s, it probably represented about 3 or 4% of the total Scottish whisky consumption around the world. And it was obviously growing. So at the time, the Glen Libbets and the Glen Fiddicks um, had really stolen a march. McCallum was just starting to generate some interest around the world. But generally speaking, the single malt market was considered to be at the top end of the Scotch whisky uh, business. Very much in keeping with sort of Berry Brothers' um, understanding and the reason, the raison d'etre of Berry Brothers and Rudd, which is basically supplying top wines to connoisseurs, to people who actually understand about wine, um, rather than um, the people, rather than the wines that you can, you can access very reasonably in the high street. Um, this is very much more about the esoteric and the, and the, and the top-end wines. And as far as whiskey was concerned, it fitted in absolutely 100% into that understanding. Yeah, so the relationship between Berry Brothers and Rudd and Glenrothes, so that began in the 1980s, 19... Yes, the late 1980s yeah. um, was when uh, the then deputy chairman of... Uh, sorry, the deputy managing director of Berry Brothers and Rudd, Christopher Berry Green, um, had um, a conversation with Highland Distilleries and they had, in those days, I think seven distilleries. We had worked very closely with them for the development of Cutty Sark whiskey. They had provided all the whiskey to us because we had never owned any distilleries nor indeed any vineyards either. And um, he said, yes, well, you can take your pick because we're not going to develop them as individual single malts. Um, so... Glenrothes was always a favourite of ours because it provided um, wonderful character to mm. the body of Cutty Sark. And so we plumped for that. I mean, it, it may be of historical interest just to note that Cutty Sark, when it was launched in 1923, was launched primarily to satisfy a demand from wine lovers to have a whisky before dinner, but not to have a whisky which had a lot of smoke in it because as you know smoke is retained on the palate so that any fine wines you're drinking thereafter would actually be tainted with mm. with smoke so that was the reason that we developed Cutty Sark and it was a Speyside based blended whiskey um, all the malts nearly all the malts came from from Speyside um, but it was it was developed specifically with a fine wine connoisseur in mind who like to have a whiskey and soda before dinner. Supper. So how much stock did Glenrothes have within their warehouses for you to play with? And how, so I was <coughs> curious, because I suppose from before you took it on, there would have been a long backlog of, of stock, I'm assuming, of barrels and casks that you could use, and then you then step into the making process of yes. that whiskey too. 
I mean, the issue really was stock. You're so right. And the issue with any successful brand is always going to be stock management of stock and the right stock. Um, we effectively, when we started developing the brand, we started developing it on the back of whatever stocks was available in the, in the, in, in the warehouses at that time. And because Glenrothes is always the favourite, or one of the top favourites of blenders, um, then most of that whisky was three to ten years old, and there wasn't a huge amount of, of, of stocks which were older than that. But in any distillery, there are, and Glenrothes would be sitting on, I think, about fifty or 60,000 casks, mm. Um, of, of whiskey at any one time, there is always going. To, you're going to find some some casts which are really wonderful. But because the supply was very limited, we decided that. Uh, well, one of the reasons we decided that we would go to um, vintages was specifically for that uh, purpose. Whereas most other distilleries had a twelve-year-old that was probably the recipe decided upon by their great grandfather, um, we would have. Um, a policy where we, we could actually vary the offerings in accordance with the vintages in much the same way as they do in wine houses. So with the wine house, the character of the wine, of the chateau, is, is, is prominent, but each of the vintages will be produced something which is slightly different. And the intention of, of developing the vintage concept and the vintage-only concept with Glenrothes was, it, was, it, was to do exactly that. Um, the industry said we were mad. They also said that we were mad to produce a bottle that was not a standard <laughs> a whiskey bottle. It was a dumpy bottle um, with a punt in the bottom. Um, but it made it stand out all the more. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience, really, to develop it. So we started in 19, probably in the 19, late 1980s to lay down stock um, in accordance with what we considered to be the best um, types of wood to put to um, this medium-bodied but wonderfully textured um, Highland or, or Speyside uh, single malt. What would you say are the most exciting changes in the whisky world at the moment? I think there's a lot of innovation going on in the whisky world. Um, a lot of it is is kicking against the parameters which are set down by the Scottish Whisky Association. And I have a huge amount of respect for the Scottish Whisky Association. In fact, I, I firmly believe that the Scottish Whisky Association is the reason the Scottish Whisky has got the prestige um, that it, it retains today, as opposed to other people's whiskies or gins or vodkas that don't seem to have the same sort of police force that we have in the Scottish Whisky industry. The industry has, like any other industry, has fast forward, pressed the fast-forward button. There has been strict control on the production of, of whiskey, and it tends to be computer-controlled. There has been fast-forwarding in, in, in yeast understanding, in fermentation times, in distillation times. Um, but most of all, the changes probably have come in our understanding of maturation, and with the existence of people like the Scottish Whiskey Research Institute in, in Edinburgh, and various other companies who are doing a lot of wood experimentation, um, I, I think the understanding of maturation is such that we have probably been able to compensate for any loss of flavour that we've got in the distillation side by 
in the the increase in understanding of the maturation side and applying those those characteristics to the to the, the spirit. I, I have it's not because I'm well it may be because I'm I'm slightly of the of the of the sort of you know in the sunset of my career, but definitely in the nineteen seventies uh, we had um, a really unhurried. And, and, and in my view, better quality of whiskey than we do today. We're not producing quite as much mm-hmm. um, per per ton of um, of malted barley in terms of alcohol, and that, after all, was driving the mm-hmm. the industry to try and get more efficiencies um, in in the production side. Um, but there's there's no doubt about it that the the, the texture um, and the richness. That you got out of the the 1970s um, was in, in in many ways better than it is today. But having said that, um, the the maturation and the understanding of wood was very poor in the 1970s, and today, of course, it is so much better. So innovation is happening in the world of whiskey. I think that um, you know, putting honey into blended whiskey is is probably a mistake, and mm. and. and trying to move with the trends like vodka did, adding flavours to it. Basically, Mm -hmm. the end of the the category was by adding different flavours to a neutral spirit, which in its own right should have stood up. Um, The same thing is happening to a certain degree with the gin market as well. Um, and the Scotch whisky market uh, it still has managed to retain its prestige, and, and I think it's it, it's unchallenged prestige in the world of spirits by not allowing um, the reputation of, of Scotch whisky to be diminished by the addition of outside properties to to whisky. Yeah. Um, you can call it old-fashioned, but it, it, there's there's no doubt about it that it has actually um, supported the uh, the overall image of the, of the of whiskey. If you take Latin America, which I specialised in for 13 years, the most important symbol of prosperity, or that you had made it, having put you know the meals on the table and the shirts on the back of your kids, was to have a bottle of 12-year-old whiskey mm. there, even if you had you lived in a slum you would have a bottle of 12-year-old whiskey there to show that you had actually made it. Um, and you know, that's thanks to the pioneers before us. It's thanks to the rules and regulations that have been put into place. Mm. I think there's been a lot of good innovation in the industry, um, definitely. I think that the, using, you know, the use of different casks, I think finishes is an interesting concept. I'm not particularly pro-finishes. Um, but I think it's an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that the, there's an enormous amount that still can be done to improve uh, single malts and blended whiskies even, but single malts in particular, just by use of the of, of wood, um, rather than try to fast-forward it and using funny little finishes to add another bottle on the shelf. Um, I'm a great believer in taking your spirit and really trying to make the very best you possibly can out of that particular spirit. Yeah. I was at um, Brickladdy Distillery a couple of months ago, and they were talking a lot about terroir. terroir. Um, I'm quite bunged up, so I'm struggling to say that today. But your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a certain, there's definitely a microbiology attached to each each individual distillery. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Um, 
terroir, I think, in the old sense, which was the sort of geographic divisions between them, the, the highlands and the lowlands and the, the islands, um, is probably not quite so evident as it may have been in the olden days. Um, and, and technically today we probably are able to produce a Highland whiskey in, in Isla and a Isla whiskey style in, in the Highlands if we wanted to. So, um, but does each individual distillery have its own identity? Yes, it does. Is it readily identifiable? Not always. Mm. Um, and I think you know people like Bruce Laddie did a wonderful job, Jim McEwen did a wonderful job, and, and, and Bill Lumsden in, in Morangie. No, two great pioneers in the world of understanding how spirit goes with wood. Um, and, and those two probably were the, together with the Scottish Whiskey Research um, Institute, obviously, um, were probably the pioneers of that. And there are now quite a few others who have jumped on that uh, bandwagon. If you were on a desert island and you only had access to one dram, what would it be? Probably a fresh one. Um, I'm a great believer in drinking whiskey when it's um, it's come out of the cask or, or when it's come out of a fresh bottle. Uh, you know, quite often you will get in a bar and you'll find a wonderful whiskey that you think should be drunk, um, but it's been open for six or nine months. And whilst whiskey doesn't go off in the bottle, it, it does lose a little bit of its vibrancy. So I would take with me a fresh bottle and something that would probably, um, there's some wonderful stuff now you can get, you can put into half open bottle, well, an open bottle of wine uh, to preserve it from oxidation. Um, so I'd take a can of that with me as well if mm -hmm. I could. But I'm a great believer in, in and I, one of the reasons we, we did vintages was because um, in the world of wine, you learn very quickly, uh, like music, that it has that certain styles go with certain moments of the day. So, in terms of whiskey, I have always been a great believer in dividing, just for simplistic reasons, whiskies into three categories that happen to be uppers, conversation, and relaxers. And you can do this automatically with music, because if you want to relax, you put on relaxing music. If you don't put on, you know, cream or Led Zeppelin or something yeah. <laughs> if you want to relax yeah. you've, you've got to have um, an understanding of what creates those sort of um, uplifting styles and, and conversation and relaxational styles in much the same way in, in terms of perfumes and, and, and understanding of aromas um, it, it kind of works similarly in, in whiskey so if you have something which is fresh fresh can be uh, normally citrus, so it's orange and, and lemon skins, that sort of thing, um, and a little bit of sourness too can be um, can be fresh. Relaxing tend to be much more spicy, um, full mm. and rounded, and, and tend to be a little bit sweeter. Um, you know, I often say to people that there's a reason that you drink champagne before dinner if you drink champagne at all, um, and then go on to white wine, red wine, and then port wine. Um, and that is that you know the champagne is very much a refreshing, uplifting style. So it's got the effervescence, it's got the sourness, it's got the citrus notes to it, which is taking you up to that level. Yeah. Then you get a sort of calmer levels of, of wines, whether it be a Sauvignon or Chardonnay or something, which is slightly um, in terms of sort of calming. 
and then fuller in the red wines, and then you get on to a port wine after dinner, which is characteristic of old-style British meals, um, and the port wine is full, and it's strong, uh, and it's, it's obviously very sweet, um, because by that stage your palate has been shot um, with wonderful food as well, in combination. If you were to drink that in the opposite way around, so you drank your glass of, of port wine before dinner and your glass of champagne afterwards, you'd be asleep in the soup and wake up to go yes. clubbing with your, <laughs> with your champagne glass. Um, it would feel unnatural, I think. It, just it, would, feel, it would feel unnatural, but we, that's evolved over hundreds of years yeah. that we, we do that. And with whiskies, I've always been a great believer in uppers and conversation styles and relaxers. And I've even got an extra one, which um, I have at the back of my cabinet called the uh, sleepers. <laughs> and those are the ones that are the incredibly boring people. Luckily, it doesn't happen very often, but it's an after-dinner drink to put him to sleep. <laughs> For that one remaining guest, you just won't Yes, leave. the one that doesn't want to go. Yes, it helps a lot. There's always one. There's always one.